Okay, everyone, if you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. We are in the book of Exodus all summer long, and I'm just going to give a quick um, refresher just to catch you up on our story. If you remember, Jacob's family became refugees in Egypt during a time of famine in which Jacob's son, Joseph, helped save not only his family, but all of Egypt. And so the Pharaoh started taking care of them, and they flourished for centuries. But then a new Pharaoh came along who forgot about Joseph, and all he could see was this people as a threat. And so he oppressed them through social and economic injustice, through military occupation, even genocide. And we talked about how um, Pharaoh and Egypt are kind of a stand-in for all of the empires of the world down through history. And they all do these three things. They commodify everything. They give it a value and try to make it so you can trade it. Then they extract that value and, and transfer it to the top of the pyramid. And then they use violence to enforce and preserve and protect that system. And they just convince everybody the way the world is, is the way it has to be. That's what empires do. Don't fight it. And then this little Hebrew boy is born in Goshen. And these daughters conspire to keep him alive. So the midwives, Jochaved, um, his mother, Miriam, his sister, and even Batparo, the um, daughter of Pharaoh, they just, they just refuse to let this little boy um, drown in the Nile, they refuse to let things be um, the way they are. And so Moses, because of the daughter's resistance, uh, grows up with this dual identity. He's a Hebrew boy growing up in the house of Pharaoh. And then we kind of have this gap, we don't know much, and then we talked about last week, there are these three scenes from his early adulthood in which he reacts to injustice with passion. On behalf of those being wrong, there's the, where he sees one of his Egyptian brothers abusing one of his Hebrew brothers. He jumps in and ends up killing the Egyptian guy. Um, when two Hebrew brothers are going at it, and he intervenes, and they're like, who do you think you are, man? And then um, he runs off to Midian, and he sees, sits down by this well, sees two shepherds kind of harassing this guy named Ruel, a priest of Midian, um, harassing his daughters. He intervenes there and stops it. This time it actually worked, and he ends up living with the family, marrying one of the daughters. And so we, we've learned kind of up to this point a lot of things, but one thing we learned is that Moses has this high sensitivity to injustice. He just sort of has no wisdom on how to address it. Ever been, met anybody like that? Like they're social justice warriors and you're like, pump the brakes, man. Like you need to, like don't try to burn everything down here. He was kind of like that. And, and his passion kind of torpedoes his trajectory here. He's, he ends up hiding out in Midian for decades. And meanwhile, back in Egypt, we learn in Exodus, end of Exodus 2, the Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose to God. God heard their moaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. It was actually an Egyptian custom that when a pharaoh died, the new king would sort of celebrate his um, ascendance to the throne by granting amnesty to all those who were guilty of crimes. They would open up the jails, free the slaves, allow those in exile to return. And so the Hebrew people were probably hoping that new pharaoh may be a new deal. And when that didn't happen, their misery was sort of intensified. And we're told that they began to cry out. They cried out. And there are, there are four verbs 
used here, they're all kind of similar, groaned, cried out, cry, moaned. But notice that it does not say at this point that they directed these cries to God. Remember, at this point in history, there is no Jewish religion, right? There's no Hebrew scripture. There's no theology. There are no liturgies, Jewish liturgies. There are no daily practices, no worship. I mean, there, there might be this faint memory of these, you know, it's almost like folklore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and the God that they claimed was leading them and speaking to them. But nobody knew this God. This God wasn't helping them right now. And so they, they didn't really cry out to God. They just cried out under the lash. And so the story, it's even more of a, a miracle if you look at it that way. The, the story goes that this old forgotten God of their ancestors who made all these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this God actually hears the cry of the people and begins to act in history. And there's this string of verbs that describes God's action. God heard their cry. The word is Shema. Remember the Shema, the hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This is like, this is ground zero for what it means to be part of the Hebrew people later on. But here, Shema is just God heard, heard them. It says God remembers. Um, the word is Zakar. It's the same exact word used about Noah when God remembered Noah or remembered Joseph in prison, or remembered Rachel in her barrenness, or remembered Abraham in Canaan. It says that God saw them in their trouble. The word is ra'ah. The word is ra'ah. And um, then it says God knew yada that we talk, talked about the last two weeks, really. And, and it's interesting in Hebrew, it does not say, our translation, I think, is God took notice of them. It doesn't say that. It says God yada, God knew. There's, and Yadah has no object. It's without an object. It just says God knew. And remember, Yadah, this, this knowledge is experiential knowledge. God is down in it with them, feeling it, experiencing, knowing what's happening. God knew. Period. And, and this was, in the history of, you know, God talk, completely different. No one had ever said this before. In fact, it's a huge moment in the Bible. From here on out, the scriptures change the way that they talk about God because of what is revealed in this story. That the difference between the gods of like Egypt or all the other kind of pagan religions and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that this God hears the cry of the oppressed while the gods of Egypt hear nothing. This God knows what is happening to them, and moves to change the situation. God is in it, in a sense, with them. And this, this is kind of a revelation about the nature of God. And it becomes foundational for the, for the um, Hebrew religion, and it is foundational for us as Christians. As Christians, we worship a God whose ear is attuned to the cry of those who suffer, who hears the cry of the oppressed, suffers with them, and moves to change their situation. So God's solidarity with those who suffer and God's sensitivity to their cries and determination to respond to them, it reveals God's compassionate nature. And this is kind of a new chapter in the human understanding of God. 
And yet, there's this Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, which you know I have like a big crush on Walter Brueggemann. Um, He says this, that the Exodus is not initiated by either the power or the mercy of God. God is the second actor in the drama of liberation. It is Israel's self-assertion that begins the process. So it's their cry of desperation that begins this process of deliverance. And somehow this is part of what God wants for human people to give voice to their suffering, to speak their suffering, to name it. I mean, Israel is a mess at this point as a people um, in the story. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of faithful folks going on. I mean, maybe a few women. Men do not come off well at all for a long time in this whole deal. They're not a faithful people. They don't worship Yahweh. They don't even know God's name is Yahweh at this point in the story. So God is not responding to their faith or their faithfulness. God is responding to their suffering, to their cries. Remember that, by the way, next time you're in trouble and you feel like you're not worthy to cry out. You're human, right? Cry out. And this God responds. It's the cry of an unworthy people that sets the entire exodus in motion. They didn't know what they were saying. They didn't really know who they were saying it to. But there's something about this God that wants us to speak and talk about our lives and cry out when it hurts. And then God hears, sees, remembers, knows. And suddenly this God, who's really kind of only mentioned once in chapter 1 and not at all in chapter 2, takes on this critical role in the narrative, all because God is a God whose ear is attuned to those who cry out in their suffering, the cry of the oppressed. God is somehow knowing with them, yadas with them, experiences it, knows it through firsthand encounters, and then moves to change their situation. So we pick up the story for this week in chapter three. And it starts with and again, Vav, remember? So this is, this is kind of signaling, got a whole new chapter starting here. And Moses was herding the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. They call him Jethro here. Same guy as Ruel, all right? They just have, he has several names. Um, the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, priest of Midian, and he drove the flock into the Ahar of the Midbar. It's um, the backside of the wilderness. And um, cue giggles from junior high boys when we say backside of the wilderness. And came, we always laughed at it when I was in Sunday school. And, and came to the mountain of God, which here they call Horeb. Usually it's Sinai, but here it's Horeb. And the Malak Hashem, messenger of the Lord, or the Lord's messenger, messenger appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. And he saw, and look, the bush was burning with fire, and the bush was not consumed. So this is all happening um, on Mount Horeb. We'll look at the map and kind of catch us up. We've been trying to keep track of where we are. So down on the Sinai Peninsula, down toward the bottom, is um, Har Sinai, or uh, Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai. And um, there's huge arguments over this is, whether this is really the right place. Some of it stems from the fact that Paul in the New Testament says it's over in Arabia, a cross that would be over somewhere um, on the other side of Midian there. Uh, it doesn't really matter for us, for our purposes, where it is. What happens is more what, or what matters more is what happened on the mountain. And this is what happened. And Moses thought, 
Let me, pray, turn aside that I may see this great sight, why the bush does not burn up. And the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see. And God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, come no closer here. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is on holy ground. Probably you're familiar with this story, right? Um, most of us were probably taught even that the burning bush was kind of God's way of getting Moses' attention there in Midian, waking him up. And there's a, a sense in with that, which that's true, like a little miracle, you know, just to get him back on track. But mostly uh, the rabbis that I read this week said it was more of a test to see what kind of man he's become here all those decades in Midian. To see if he was just like a cynical old burnout, you know, disillusioned by life, uh, or even just a fugitive from, from justice, hanging out there on the, the backside of the desert, you know. Is, is he still curious enough to turn aside when he sees something? Um, the, the word is ashura. It means literally take a detour. Will he take a detour to go see whatever, the world's largest ball of twine, or I don't know, what's out in western Kansas, largest hand dug well. We went and saw that one time. It was underwhelming, um, but he turns, he turns aside, right? He takes a detour, abandons his current plan. It reminds me of metanoia, repent. Um, there's this rabbi, Lawrence Kirshner, he writes, perhaps the burning bush wasn't a miracle, but a test. God wanted to find out if Moses could see the mystery in something as ordinary as a bush on fire in order to see it as a miracle. Moses had to watch the flames long enough to realize that the branches were not being consumed and that something awesome was happening. And once God saw that Moses could pay attention, God spoke to him. Uh, that's a really interesting reading of this. It's this willingness to turn aside, use that language, um, that phrase twice in the passage. He turns aside and then God saw that he turns aside and God says, because he can turn aside, I can, I can work with this, this guy. And it's not like a holy impulse. I mean, we read scriptures, we think everything is some big holy thing. He just saw a, burst, uh, a burning bush, and it wasn't burned up, and he's like, I gotta see what this is. This is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And that's all it takes for God to say, okay, I can, I can probably work with this guy. It reminds me of like a rudder on a ship, right, that only works if there's a little bit of motion. That's all God needs is just a little bit of motion. He starts to, to seal, or um, starts to, to lead and, and move Moses. Um, all it takes is him turning aside. That's all it took. So the fire um, is the angel, is the messenger. The voice, though, is God's, saying, take off your shoes. Have a little reverence for what's happening here. The rabbis say, this is another test. What kind of man has Moshe become? Remember, Moshe means to draw out. Is he, has he become the kind of man who can do what his name says and draw the people out? Or is he like those shepherds maybe that we met, the Midianites um, who harassed the daughters around the well? Is he a jerk now with power and he's throwing his weight around, you know, dominating others? Or is he still searching for some kind of meaning to his story? Why was he a Hebrew growing up in the house of Pharaoh? Is he still a person who longs for justice, who hopes for something better? Often, the rabbis even say that it was right for Moses to take off his shoes as a sign of reverence. But it's not actually because 
the ground had suddenly become holy. But Moses took his shoes off because um, he could finally see that the ground was holy all along. That, that all ground is holy ground. That all bushes are burning. And if we can't see that, we have um, kind of a reverence problem. One of the rabbis I read said that if Pharaoh had have happened along and seen the bush, he would have just seen an ordinary bush. He wouldn't have seen that it was burning and not being consumed. He, that's what makes Moses, Moses, he had this sense of reverence. I actually see this a lot as a pastor. It's one of those things that I, um, I guess I sense it more, more than anything else, more than it's spoken or, or something. That There are just some people who are looking for a way to believe, and there are some people who are looking for a way not to believe. It's this predisposition, and it has to do, I think, with, with reverence. And Moses, it turns out, Moses is one of those guys. He's looking for ways to believe. He wants to believe. And part of what our story tells us is that we live in a world set ablaze with the glory of God. That we're situated in like an intentional divine order that's intended for shalom. Remember, shalom is peace, which, which means the right ordering of everything it is. Everything where it's supposed to be doing what it's intended to do and rightly relating to everything else and thereby all of it flourishing. That's the goal. And, and this story starts to to make us aware that the only way to maintain this order, this shalom, is to actually see everything as sacred. God, the self, each other, the world around us. Because if we hold things as sacred, with a kind of reverence, it's, it's hard to oppress things. It's hard to kill and hurt. And, and, and when we stop, you know, seeing those things, if we're irreverent toward God's self, other in the world, then shalom's disrupted and, and the flourishing dissipates. And so really all of life is designed to nudge us toward a sense of reverence in every direction because everything is, is sacred. It's funny, if you, I've never been there, but I read about it. If you, if you go to Sinai, Mount Sinai today, there's a, a, a little monastery, St. Catherine's Monastery. This is like the oldest place of continuous Christian worship on the planet. This place was built in the 300s, and they've been singing the prayers there every day since then. It's stunning. But if you go there, you can do some tours, and they'll show you the burning bush. This is a picture of it over on the right. I don't know if you can see it. Do you see what's down by the base of it? There is a fire extinguisher. <laughs> That is the best. I love this picture. Like, I'm printing it out and putting it on my wall. There's a fire extinguisher by the burning book. If that's not a metaphor for where we are in the world, I don't know what is. <laughs> but if you go there, they'll give you a, tool, uh, a tour, and they'll tell you without irony, this is the burning bush, and just smile at you. And this separates the world into those two kinds of people who want to believe and people who are looking for a way not to believe. And it's only the people who have learned the secret that everything is sacred. All ground is holy ground. All bushes are burning. Only they can see that this is, this is a burning bush. And those who haven't learned this secret, they just see this bush and they're glad there's a fire extinguisher there, I guess. It's what the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning um, described. She said, Earth's crammed with heaven, 
and every common bush a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. We are a blackberry plucking people, right? In uh, a blackberry plucking, I have to be very careful when I say that we're uh, like culture, right? This, this is who we are. And we would rather do that than see it all as bathed with the glory of God. And there's a sense in which this, this reverence is essential for those who want to organize their lives around peace, shalom. It keeps us from abusing each other and ourselves and the world. And, and, and there's a sense in which reverence upstream for things upstream of us, like God, helps us to have reverence for things downstream of us, like the, the weakest, the marginalized, um, the, the environment, nature. Barbara Brown Taylor says it this way, reverence is the recognition of something greater than the self, something that is beyond human creation or control, that transcends human understanding. Reverence is the virtue that keeps human beings from trying to act like gods. Pharaoh was a god. He, he had no reverence for the Israelite people. Enslaving them is, is nothing to them. Moses almost had the opposite problem. Let's keep reading. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I indeed have seen the abuse of my people that is in Egypt and its outcry because of its taskmasters. I have heard, for I know its pain. And I have come down to rescue it from the hand of Egypt and to bring it up from that land to a goodly and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, look, the outcry of the Israelites has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And now, go. Um, by the way, that's Becha. Um, that's the same. Remember way back with Abraham, Lech Lecha, get going. It's the same word. He says the same thing he said to Abraham that started that off way back in the origin story. He's saying that now to Moses here at the burning bush. Go, that I may send you to Pharaoh and bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So Moses passes first test mostly, and he's shown um, this curiosity. He turns aside, has reverence enough to discern the holy, and then God says, I want you to go. You're going to help get my people out, out of Egypt. The problem is Moses does not want to do it. And like the next, I don't know, a couple chapters are him arguing with God because he's having this like epic crisis of confidence here. He starts rattling off all these reasons that he should not be the guy. Like you have got the wrong fella here. And, and God just in, in the narrative just sort of brushes them aside. So like in, in 311, he says, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh. And God says, I will be with you. And a couple of verses later, he says, if they ask me, what is this God's name? What shall I say? And God says, I just am who I am. So tell them I am sent you. And then the next chapter four, verse one, it says, what if they do not believe me or listen to me? God said, what's in your hand? It was a shepherd's staff because he was a shepherd at this point. 
And God says, throw it on the ground. Throws it on the ground, it becomes a snake. And it doesn't say in, in the Hebrew, but I'm assuming Moses wet his pants at this point because that is what I would do. But it, it turns into a snake, and, and then um, the snake, by the way, is a cobra. Um, the, the, it's meant to mimic the pharaohs here. Like you see a headdress, they would wear these things that made them look like the cobra, and the cobra is up on the, on the crest of it. He's basically turning the staff into the thing that he's afraid of, the pharaoh. And then he says, grab it by the tail. So, I mean, this is deep imagery here of what he's in for. Basically saying, face your fears, man. And, and then it turned, as soon as he touched it, it turns back into a staff as if to say, you have nothing to fear here. And then um, chapter 4, verse 10, he said, but I'm slow of speech. Now he's looking at himself going, like, I, do, I don't have what it takes. I'm slow of speech, slow of tongue. We don't really know exactly what that means. God's like, I'll tell you what to say. He sort of persists in it, and he's like, okay, I'll send Aaron, your brother. He's already on your way. Apparently, he's appeared to, to his brother, who's on the way to meet him. He's like, he'll, he'll speak for you. He, he talks, you know, great. And then finally, he just gets down to it, and Moses says, please send someone else. <laughs> he's just begging at this point. He's having a full-on nervous breakdown because he didn't want to go. And he tried everything he could to get out of it. And basically, all of God's responses just boil down to, I'll be with you. I got you. Don't worry. And all Moses could think was, I am not up to this. He just didn't see himself as like a world leader, right? Which seems like, to me, a good sign. Like if God spoke to one of you and told you, I want you to run for president, and your first thought was, sweet, I'd make a great president. I don't want you anywhere near like that, any political office at all, right? And it, it turns out Moses' reticence, this kind of low opinion of himself, isn't, isn't a problem at any point during the story. His problem, though, is he, he has this low opinion of God. Or maybe just that he, he doesn't yet know God. Nobody did. It's not really his fault. He just doesn't know who God is or what God's like. There was no well-developed doctrine of this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't know that his name was Yahweh yet. And, and so God's like, just, just tell him I am, which sounds like God is messing with him, like he's playing a joke. Like, I just told him to tell everybody just I exist. My name is I am. How hilarious is that? It's like... This is not helpful, right? But I don't think he's actually being elusive. I think it's on, it's on purpose. God's just trying to get Moses to see and experience. It doesn't matter if he's not presidential material. He grew up among the Hebrews and the Egyptians. Who else got to do this? He's a Hebrew son who was educated with, with Pharaoh's people. He knows he was in the palace. He knows how the whole thing works. Who else could, could work to bring it down a notch? And, and what matters is not that he, you know, struggles. What matters is that God will be with him. Barbara Taylor says it this way. What God was actually saying was, never mind who you are. What matters is who I am. And she's using that same language, I am. And that I have chosen you. I would add that I am, I am with you. And so Moses, you know, jacked up as he is, um, faces God and God says, that's not really the point. It doesn't matter who you are. It matters who I am. And I, I am who I am 
and I'm with you, man. I got you. I'll always be with you. That's, that's the deep wisdom that Moses had to, had to reach for. And of course, this is, this is the hard thing, right? This is it. This is the trick for all of us in our lives. It doesn't matter so much um, who we are, who we are maybe not, and how we are broken. What matters is that God is a God who is with us. It doesn't matter um, so much if I have things to hide. It matters if I hide them, though. You know, if if I live in safety mode and try to put a pretty face on everything, then God can't get to me. And then if I do that, it doesn't really matter who God is because I've closed myself off to God because I don't know how to cry, cry out. And this God responds to the cry. This is why we confess every time we worship, why we talk about being a ragamuffin church because we're trying to say, don't hide, man. Your brokenness is not a problem. Your loneliness your estrangement, that is a real problem. If we, if we close ourselves off, even as a, a means of self-protection, to hide even our, our sense of um, brokenness from the church, this is a mistake. It's a mistake. Hiding to maybe avoid consequences, it's a mistake. And for whatever reason, this is something, it's just a really common problem. It's our first impulse. It's Adam and Eve when God comes looking for them in the garden. He's like, where are you? What are they doing? Hiding. They're hiding. Our brokenness makes us hide. But this closes us off to God, to ourselves, to others, to the world. And if if we're closed off, how will we find reverence for those things and sensitivity to God's presence in the world? Reverence is meant to be for all of life, even our own brokenness. You ever thought of that? We're supposed to hold our brokenness with a kind of reverence because it's this point of contact between us and God. Reverence is essential, especially when every single day of our lives, um, inevitably, the, the empire, the empires of our days, are telling us that injustice is just factored into the world. It's the price of doing business. It's the way the world is, so don't try and fight it. You can't do anything about it. And so for us, it it takes some intentional, patient, disciplined um, living, even effort, over really a, a long period of time to relinquish that old tired script of empire that that everything in our world tries to sell us as true. The script of empire that says your value as a person is how much you produce and consume. That you are a cog in a machine called capitalism and not a precious child of God. And in order to disengage from that script that's everywhere and find instead a sense of reverence for God and self and others in the world, a reverence that can lead, by the way, to shalom, to the right ordering of the world. We, we need to engage in a different source, which is kind of a daily, weekly, monthly set of habits and rhythms and practices that can slowly transform us over time.
into a, a people of reverence who can see that the bushes are burning, who can know that God is with us, and who can tell the truth about their lives and cry out. And it's not like sexy or earth-shattering stuff. It's just the long, patient work of learning to see everything as holy. I often think of it in, in these matched pairs. There are a few that I talk about a lot. For some of this, some of you, this is review. But I see them kind of tracking most of them together. The first set is, is Sabbath-keeping and tithing. Because these are the kind of the basic practices and rhythms that break the hold that the empire of consumerism has on our lives. I mean, only slaves in Egypt work seven days a week. And, and we need Sabbath to convince us that we're free. Tithing is tenthing. You take just a tenth of your income and, and give it to God. Return it back to God as a gift as if to say, I know I'm not generating any of this. Like, it's not my ingenuity. It's not, I'm not generating my life. I'm receiving it. And so I'm giving this off the top to remind myself um, that you're doing this, and that makes the other 90%, in a sense, holy, uh, a kind of burning bush. And this also reminds me I'm not a slave to my job, to my work. Tithing, it, it's, it like snaps one of the cords that is tied to the rock that is dragging us to the bottom of the ocean, right, called consumerism. That's the first pair. The second pair is weekly worship and daily prayer. So we come together, we're breathed into the lungs of God, fortified with all we need, and we kind of offload all the messiness, and then we're, we're breathed out into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our friends, our families, to be the presence of God in, in those places. And then each day while we're away, we hold to a rhythm of prayer, morning, midday, and evening prayer. Morning prayer, we get up and do some kind of routine, even if it's just like headspace or, or like an app where you listen to the, the morning office. Um, at midday, a bunch of us, it's funny when we're together over noon, you'll hear everybody's um, alarms going off on their phones at noon to stop and pray, read a psalm, say the Lord's Prayer, just sit in silence and breathe for a second. And then some kind of evening ritual, whether it's um, before you leave work, on the way home, after, before dinner, or even just at night before we go to bed. Some, some kind of way to re-engage with God, to, to, to look, to turn our attention toward the divine. So that's worship and prayer. Next one is time together and time apart. And this is just some kind of group, whether it's a small group at church or like just a couple other people, where you get together and tell the truth about your life and just listen to one another. And then time apart is for silence and solitude, to be quiet and attentive to God, to your own body, your own life. For some of you, this will mean like nature walks, getting out in nature. For me, I just, I love to just sit on the steps or a bench out there or just sit in my car sometimes. And then the last one is um, a different kind of a pair. It's to become paired with the outcasts of the world. And this is a huge part of how we learn to recognize the presence of God because to be present, Christ says, with the least and the last and the lowly means to be in the presence of God because God is with them. And if you want to learn more, of that, more about that, read the Sermon on the Mount or read Matthew 25. Being paired with the outcasts is the weirdest thing, man, but it, it helps us to tune our ears to the cry of the oppressed as God does. 
And so these, these are just sort of the most basic rhythms of our life. They don't take a ton of time during the day. In fact, in the beginning, keep it short, man. I mean, like just a minute or two for each of them. But if you will do this, what you will find is you'll be cultivating a sense of reverence for God, yourself, other people in the world. And it, it will begin, that reverence will begin to generate in you the, the ability to hear the cry of those who suffer in our day. And, and these are things that, that people of God, they've been doing this for thousands of years. Some of them predate Christianity. These are basic habits that can teach us everything is sacred. All ground is holy ground. All bushes are burning. And if, if we can't see this, we have a reverence problem and we need to, we, you know, it's just a very short step to, to beginning to mistreat somebody. So we need to step it back and cultivate this reverence. Moses, he could see it, man. And this is why God could use him. And, and this story invites us all to kind of step into that place where we can see that earth's crammed with heaven, Right? And every common bush, a fire with God, but only he who sees take off his shoes and the, the rest sit around and pluck blackberries. My prayer for us is that we'll learn to see. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this story and the book of Exodus and this ragamuffin Moses. I pray that we will see ourselves in this story, not as some great prophets, but just as um, part of your family, part of your people. And I pray that without um, guilt and without heavy, heavy burden, that we would slowly engage in the rhythms um, of Sabbath and tithing of weekly worship together of daily prayer, time together with one another, time apart, that we would become paired with the outcast, find a place of reverence, learn to hear the cry. And most of all, I just pray that we would always know that, that you are with us, always. Amen. I invite you to stand now, and we're going to receive communion, <clears throat> as we always do. And um, we have stopped handing out the elements beforehand, so we're actually um, going to, uh, during this next song, we'll dismiss everybody kind of to the aisles. The ushers will, will show you how to do it. Come forward, and you'll grab one of, one of these and take it back to your seat, and then receive the elements there. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said to his disciples who were gathered, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, a new deal between humanity and God. And then he said, every time you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup, remember my body, my life poured out for you. And more than that, Receive my life into your life. Become made of the stuff I'm made of. And then go out into the world and 
bear my image, be salt and light to the world. That's it. He said, do this every time you gather. So this is why we receive communion. And this is why we invite everybody to the table. So um, let's, let's pray a blessing on the elements first. <clears throat> Lord, we give you thanks for this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Will you come?